ILCA is, today, the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA. Hello, my name is Ken Liu. I'm a transplant hepatologist from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney, Australia. And I have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Amit Singhal, uh, Professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And today uh, we're live at uh, Madrid for ILCA 2022, and we're covering uh, some of the highlights from session two of yesterday, which was on staging, epidemiology, and prognosis of HCC. So Amit, it's good to be back live face to face again. Yeah, it's been way too long. So Ken, you know, I think this is a, um, a really interesting session. Um, I thought we saw some very good science, as you know, and um, you know we saw four interesting abstracts that were presented. You know, so the first one really talked about some of the um, where the field is going in terms of treatment. Um, so Dr. Siong presented um, an abstract efficacy of local treatment in lymph node metastases for um, hepatocellular carcinoma. So, you know, an abstract that came out of Korea taking a look at patients who had lymph node metastases. About 850 patients, about two thirds of them were treated. Um, with systemic therapy alone, which I think is what most of us would do for lymph node metastases at this time. And about one third were treated with a combination of local therapy plus systemic therapy. Local therapy, largely radiotherapy. Some of these patients also had resection of the lymph nodes, which is, in my opinion, pretty interesting in mm. terms of thinking through this, particularly once again, as the field moves towards more combination therapies. And I think she had multiple different messages that they were able to show in this very large series of patients with lymph node metastases. The first is that she compared how patients did by the location of the lymph nodes. Um, and not surprisingly, those patients who had local lymph nodes tended to do better than those patients who had you know, widely sort of spread intra-abdominal lymph nodes who did better than those patients who had extra-abdominal lymph nodes. So location matters in terms of how people did. But most notably, she showed in a propensity score um, uh, matched analysis that those patients who were treated with combination therapy had significantly better survival than those patients treated with systemic therapy alone. Now, single study, you know, single, single centers, single trial, that, or single sort of retrospective mm. study that shows this, but what do you take away from this? Should we be doing combination therapy in all our patients with lymph node metastases? And remember, like, this is also, we have the LAUNCH trial yeah. that also recently was published you know, showing similar results of TACE plus lumatinib improving survival. So what do you think, of, what, what should we do? Uh, this study and the launch trial really sort of calls into question the traditional paradigm of if you have, you know, extra hepatic spread that um, that should be BCLCC and be treated with systemic therapy only. And then these two studies sort of suggest that adding on some local treatment may have benefit. With this particular trial, because it is retrospective and, and although you know, with propensity score matching, you can try your best to even out the groups. I still th would like to see some prospective yeah. data yeah. Uh, before I would consider changing my paradigm. One of the key things here is even though these studies can, you can adjust, you know, you can do propensity score match analyses, there's still some inherent bias yeah. of who gets combination therapy versus who gets sort of systemic therapy alone. So this like channeling bias, you just can't adjust away. Yeah. Um, in these retrospective cohort studies. But I think that you're right, that I think that these kind of studies really highlight that perhaps the whole silo that we used to think of, like this stage is this treatment, is maybe going away. Mm. And you know, we do need prospective data that really helps us figure out who needs combination therapies, who can get you know, systemic therapy alone. So it's a, it's a fascinating time. And I think data like this help us really inform what should happen. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, so we'll move on to the second abstract, which was presented by uh, Professor Adam from France, but he presented the uh, whole of the Euro transplant or um, European liver transplant registry data from its inception in the 80s to uh, current time, huge numbers, over 32,000 um, transplants specifically for HCC. And it was really interesting to see the trends over time from pre-Milan uh, criteria to um, to 2011, which is sort of an arbitrary cutoff they had, and to current. There were interesting observations, which I guess weren't that surprising. One was the indication for liver, uh, HCC for liver transplant had increased from about 10% to now almost 30%, and that's certainly what I see in my yeah. clinical practice. And then as expected with an aging population uh, and better control of viral hepatitis, the um, recipient age has increased over time as the proportion of viral hepatitis-related HCC but uh, and compensatory increase in alcohol-related HCC. In, in terms of, I guess, the tumor burden, it, it was fairly reassuring to see that the um, tumor burden had remained stable over time, so the tumor number was about the same and, and a slight decrease in tumor size. But interestingly, there was a slight increase in proportion of people being transplanted with portal vein tumor thrombus. Uh, up to 6% in, in the latest era. On the donor side, it's unsurprising that um, the donor age is also increasing, but also we're relying on uh, proportionally a more a cadaveric circulatory death donors rather than your traditional brain death donors. Another interesting point is um, the number of live donors that they use um, was still quite small in comparison to the deceased cadaveric donors. But I think that the big take-home point of uh, this abstract was the improvement in overall survival across the different era. The latest one-year um, graft in patient survival was up to 93%, which is a massive improvement to, from the pre-Milan era. Um, it's hard to tease out with a study this big with this many numbers. I guess what the, the causes of that is, I, I'm sure a lot of it is to do with the introduction of DAAs and better control of uh, hepatitis B, uh, but also um, the improvements in transplantation technique over this time and better immunosuppression as well. Uh, so yeah, this was just really excellent study. Yeah, no, I think it was really nice to see, I mean, like, you know, when you compare the three eras, you know, of course, all of us expected to see a vast improvement between era one and era two, right? Milan criteria, mm. we got better at patient selection. But I agree with you, it was very nice to see continued improvements, which I think, to your point, exactly agree that I think this relates to not only improvements in terms of you know, intraoperative management, perioperative management, but really comes down to the fact that we've gone into a post-DAA world, and hepatitis C was a major cause of morbidity. Mm. Recurrent hep C was a major cause of morbidity um, in these patients, and, you know, we've gotten better at this because now people can be treated, whether that's, you know, prior to transplantation or post-transplant. I think the other thing that I took away was, you know, when you took a look at the type of transplant, um, it was very reassuring and very nice to see the improvement in survival over those three years, but, living donor did worse yeah. than deceased donor. And I think that Gonzalo came up and had this discussion that, you know, living donors still accounted for a small proportion of transplants in this, you know, large registry. And the number of living donor transplants that were being done at each of the individual centers was probably small. Mm. And much like everything, 
you know, practice makes perfect. And yeah. so this is really where volume probably matters. And so this is one area where we can continue to see improvements in terms of the living donor outcomes. So hopefully that will be the next iteration of these data. We'll be to see larger numbers there and improvements there. The other thing that I would say is survival's improved. Mm. But I think the biggest thing in transplant is we want to now maximize the number of people who can benefit from this. So now it's a matter of, you saw that, I mean, I took a little bit of a different bend on the tumor burden being around the same and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'd say if the survival's improved, we should be going towards downstaging, we should be going towards expanded criteria. Let's expand the benefit of transplant to more and more people. So I think this is going to be the next iteration of this, is really to make it so we preserve the bar of what post-transplant survival we want and maximize the number of people can benefit from a societal perspective. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, agree with you, fascinating data and really helps us think through this from a, a very large registry that represents nearly you know, 95% of the transplants that happen across mm. Europe. You know, so the third abstract was one that I had the, the uh, honor of presenting um, on behalf of the North American Liver Cancer Consortium, so 13 centers in the United States, where we evaluated patients with sub-centimeter um, observations uh, on an ultrasound. One can be like, why did you do the study? We sort of know what to do in these patients, but when you take a look at the data, the data are 15 to 20 mm. years old, and we know that there's been changes in terms of the cirrhosis epidemiology, right? We've gone from a viral hepatitis world, um, at least in the Western world, to being more and more non-viral. So more alcohol-associated liver disease, more NASH-related liver disease. And these things can have significant impact in terms of risk of HCC. We know it's lower than viral hepatitis and tumor biology. So, you know, we wanted to see what, what actually happens in these patients with sub-centimeter liver lesions um, and have this and see what how this informs what the follow-up or the recall strategies should be. So, you know, we um, identified, I, I believe, around 750 patients across these 13 sites, um, and we explored what people did in real-world clinical practice, and then we looked at what the risk of uh, incident primary liver cancer and factors associated with this. Not surprisingly, sort of for anyone who's looked at any kind of clinical practice in the U.S., it was all over the place. Mm -hmm. Huge variation in clinical practice. Um, unfortunately, only 25% of patients had guideline concordant short interval um, ultrasound. There were about 20% of patients who went on to receive a diagnostic CT or MRI, despite not having a lesion greater than a centimeter or an elevated alpha-beta protein. Most notably, there were many patients who either had delayed ultrasound and some patients who didn't have any imaging for a year. And this wasn't a small proportion, it was 20% or higher that had no imaging for um, a year after the sub-centimeter um, liver observation. When you take a look at the, the incident <clears throat> primary liver cancer risk, the incidence of primary liver cancer was right around 2.5% over a median follow-up of 26 months. Similar to what you see in a background cirrhosis population, it wasn't 5%, it wasn't half a percent. I mean, it was right where you would expect to see maybe a little bit higher than you would see in a non-viral population, but about 2.5% per year. Risk factors for having primary liver cancer, not anything, once again, too surprising, but your risk was higher if you had thrombocytopenia, if you had an elevated AFP. But one of the things that I was actually surprised is that the risk did not dramatically differ based on the size of the observation. It was one of our hypotheses going in that you know if you had an observation of eight millimeters, nine millimeters, that was closer to a centimeter lesion and your risk may be substantially higher, but that didn't actually bear out um, in our multivariable analysis. I think what we said in terms of take home messages, 
A, we need to do better in terms of our follow-up for these patients, right? So this goes along with the same messaging of surveillance underutilization. We need to make sure these patients who have a sub-centimeter liver observation have guideline concordant care. B, um, you know, in terms of the second home, take-home message from this abstract, was that right now, I think our data support current AASLD and easel guidelines um, to do short interval ultrasound-based surveillance in most of these patients. So repeat ultrasound in three to six months, but it does highlight that some of these patients, you know, for example, once again, those patients with thrombocytopenia and elevated AFP greater than the threshold that we used in the study was 10, you know, may be at higher risk. And you may be able to identify um, high-risk subgroups who warrant CT or MRI-based surveillance. And this really goes to this whole concept of precision screening, where we may be able to sort of have individualized approaches how to follow patients. Yeah. I mean, what I particularly liked about your cohort was that it's very racially diverse. In terms of etiology as well, I think there was over 30% non-viral. Yeah. So it was a very um, generalizable to, to other populations. Just two questions I had for this abstract was, um, a proportion of people had on their report by the radiologist a recommendation to go on to, instead of repeating ultrasound at short interval, yeah. which is what the guidelines recommend, but to go on to have CT or MRI instead, and that's did influence their follow-up. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is interesting. So I think that, you know, the, so you're right. So those patients who had a recommendation from the radiologist as part of the report, you know, were much less likely to have short interval ultrasound. And although it didn't reach statistical significance, were more likely to get um, a diagnostic CT or MRI. So there was a little bit of this medical legal fear that, you know, even though it's not guideline concordant care, the radiologist recommended mm -hmm. a CT or MRI and I think many of those hepatologists felt somewhat pressured or primary care providers felt somewhat pressured in terms of getting that diagnostic imaging as recommended in that report. We identified this as one of the potential intervention targets, you know, to educate our radiology colleagues that this is, you know, promoting guideline non-concordant care. I, I think this is something we need to fix. I think it's mm. something that um, we need to work with our radiology colleagues to, to once again promote um, the uh, care that goes along with guidelines. Yeah. And the other question I had was, did, for the patients that didn't get appropriate follow-up and, and some who didn't get follow-up at all, did you get a feel, and maybe from your own clinical practice, was that uh, because uh, the patient didn't show up for their yeah. scan or was that because the doctor had you know, um, not followed up on this sub-centimeter lesion? Yeah, we didn't, ex we didn't examine that specifically in this study, but you're right, there's you know, literature that we published in terms of surveillance underutilization in general. Um, and we find that there are barriers across the entire spectrum here in terms of providers not ordering this, patients not getting it done. Um, but, but we did find in prior studies that the biggest reason is because providers don't order that follow-up. So, you know, at least um, historically, we've, we've identified that as the primary intervention mm -hmm. target, although we do acknowledge that there are patient barriers that need to also be addressed to solve this in the future. So we'll move on to the last and final abstract, which is another transplant one. And this is a North American study looking specifically at liver transplant of NASH-related HCC versus non-NASH HCC. And again, they combined um, two big databases, the UNOS database as well as the Canadian liver transplant database. So I think they had around 2,000 NASH-related HCCs and um, almost 20,000 non-NASH HCCs. So big numbers. Mm -hmm. This is from um, Gonzalo's group. They, they found... In, 
again, perhaps unsurprisingly, that the Nash group um, of recipients were slightly older. Of course, they had a higher BMI and their liver function come time to transplant was worse as reflected by the MELD. Uh, but their AFP was slightly lower. There was no differences in the proportion of um, patients within Milan criteria pre-transplant, but they actually did find that the NASH HCC cohort on explant had higher proportions of people outside Milan criteria. Um, and again, in fitting with clinical practice, the proportion of patients being transplanted for HCC, the proportion of that with NASH is increasing over time. Um, thankfully, they didn't show any differences in outcomes. Uh, so in terms of death rates uh, and recurrence rates, they were the same. Again, another surprising finding was that um, the rates of cardiovascular-related death were not increased in the NASH HCC cohort. And in fact, they had a reduced risk of liver-related cause of death. Um, which, which are novel findings. I, I took a lot away from this, and, and one of their recommendations was that um, we should treat NASH HCC the same way in terms of uh, prioritization on the list as non-NASH HCC. Uh, I, I guess what they haven't, these are all the patients that were transplanted that they presented, so I, I don't know if the waitlist dropout rates, for example, between the two groups, but it's certainly uh, some interesting data. Yeah, and I mean, obviously very important, right? So this is the future of HEC is this, you know, NASH-related HEC. I think, you know, there's a couple of different things that I would say that, I mean, important data. I do think that, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the follow-up, we need to continue following these to your point of the cardiovascular mortality mm. post-transplant. You really do need long, continued follow-up to make sure that we know five, 10 years what the differences are between these two populations. But I, I do agree it's reassuring that the short-term survival was very similar between this. And I think the other thing that, um, and this is not true for, the, not only for this abstract, but in general, I think the other thing that we're sort of realizing in this field is like etiologies aren't clean, right? Mm. So like, um, I can't remember, at least personally, the last NASH patient that I had that had never drank a, you know, a, yeah. you know any alcohol. So. You know, in the general field, we're going towards this whole like NASH or is it metabolic associated fatty liver disease, this whole like NASH-ASH etiology. Mm -hmm. And so because of some of the limitations, both from the Canadian um, data set as well as the UNOS data set, it's sometimes difficult to, to distinguish NASH versus ASH versus NASH-ASH. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, and know, even was... in the non-NASH uh, non group, um, you can certainly have viral hepatitis yeah. plus fatty liver disease. Exactly. So these things, unfortunately, aren't just as clean as sort of like NASH and non-NASH. But, you know, I think this was one of the things that, once again, you know, the reason I think to come to ILCA, besides just hearing these these, these summaries, is the discussion, mm. right? And the, this was the nice thing um, that happened was the discussion between all these things and how to think through this in terms of applying it to your clinical practice. Once again, four amazing abstracts, yeah. um, all very important in terms of as we think through concepts of epidemiology staging and prognosis and how we apply this to our clinical practice. It's, um, it was very exciting, great to talk to you about this even more. I learned, um, I think even just having this summary, it, it um, makes it reinforced and I think I learned even more from, from these discussions. So thanks so much, Ken, this yeah, is great. Likewise, thank you. This episode is sponsored by Heptoma Research, an international peer-reviewed gold open access, continuously published online academic journal, founded by OAE Publishing Inc. 
The journal aims to provide an academic exchange platform focusing on all topics of liver cancer and its related diseases through publications, video abstracts, webinars and interviews. ILCA is today the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA